Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Coming up on this week's show, are classic games becoming endangered? The crap games competition is on. And we talk bringing Konami games to the West with Jeremy Blaustein. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books, absolutely worth checking out and getting a reprint very soon, is A Guide to Japanese Role-Playing Games. Their biggest book to date, weighing in at over 650 pages. We'll tell you more about that in just a bit, but you can check out that and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 386, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that each and every Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the classic age of video games and technology. Basically, if you're old enough to know what this sound means, this is a podcast for you. You love that. Joe knows what that means. That, Do you remember? Yeah, it's MSN, isn't it? But the nudge, That's there's annoying, the nudge as well. I look, I, this is definitely your new gimmick. Is this three, three weeks in a row now? <laughs> I mean, I'm enjoying it. I want to see how far you can take this. Yeah, I'll run out of sounds eventually. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, that's what we do on the podcast. That we take you back, bring back memories like that. And of course, uh, video games are definitely a very big part of what this podcast does, even though we cover technology as well. And I think it's fair to say that we probably don't. I mean, we're probably a bit guilty of maybe not giving Japanese games quite as much coverage on this podcast, mainly because it's actually quite hard to get guests from Japan on the podcast because of, you know, language barriers and uh, you know time differences as well. But today we're actually going to be going inside one of the biggest Japanese companies for video games, of course, the legendary Konami. Now, this is really interesting. To Jeremy Blaustein, who is one of the guys who's responsible for bringing some of these legendary Konami titles over to the West. Yeah, this is a, a kind of a, for me, it was a real eye-opening kind of like journey that he went on and kind of like, for me, the learning the trials and tribulations of bringing these games over to the West, even as recently as like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, because he had a really, really interesting career, kind of like, kind of fell in to translation. And it was really interesting because he actually wanted to study Welsh and learn the Welsh language. Yeah. Oh, wow. It, 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 was, yeah. it was a really, really interesting interview because I've not really like discovered and looked at this area. And it's very much, you know, Joe's kind of specialist area, Metal Gear Solid and uh, mm. Silent Hill 2 and uh, titles like that. But the kind of conversation about the cultural differences and yeah. how, you know, it's not just a, a, a translation of a game. It's not um, a mm. kind of, you know, just changing it the words. You have to think of how to hit that Western audience and how to change yeah. it. And and working with that relationship with the Japanese as well. It's a re- really interesting interview. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good point you made. I kind of forgot about that because, um, because it was like, like you say, in the, in the earlier games, you know, because he kind of started his career in the 16-bit era. It was very, mm. okay, go be be an advisor on this game. That's kind of how we started, like, give advice on this game. And it kind of progressed into translating this game. But it was advice on, tr- you know, kind of like porting it, translating it to the West. And like you say, Ravi, those first kind of games, it would just be a text box, but it just, it wouldn't 
make sense for the West or the one-for-one translation wouldn't really make sense. So he would get to kind of make those decisions of like, okay, instead of saying that, we'll say this. And it's it's kind of wild to see that that wasn't that. He, he, he described the, the word for it in the interview. Um, you know, QA control, like, you know, quality quality assurance, but for regional dialect assurance, I think he called yeah. it. And it's, that it's, didn't, it's beyond, it didn't exist um, when he started. Um, and it's like you say, it's really eye-opening to see who kind of made those decisions and stuff. And all the way kind of like into the PlayStation era, it was still kind of happening because of he did the translation for Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which is quite an infamous translation. And he kind of gives his view on why that kind of happened because of, um, I won't spoil it, but it's just, it was really interesting for me. It's interesting. It's it's, it's beyond um, all your base are belong to us, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. doing <laughs> yeah. something like uh, Metal Gear Solid. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he talks about how, you know, there's different politics between different countries and trying to kind of work out the approach of that and then having to explain to the guys, you know, uh, certain concepts and ideas and what what's going to work in the West and not. And uh, mm. also working, you know, in America, but then also working over in Japan as well. You get two total different cultures. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that, um, yeah, all your all your base belong to us from Zero Wing because, you know, famously in the 80s, there were some really bad video game translations, weren't there? Like Nintendo's Pro Wrestling was one, you know, where it's, uh, I think it's a winner is you at the end and Ikari Warriors was one as well. So, I mean, it it is definitely interesting to hear about how these big Japanese companies suddenly decided that there was a need actually to employ someone to do it properly rather Mm. than just because, I mean, you know, I imagine in the 80s, you know, these earlier games probably only had a team of like a couple of guys working on them at most. So, um, you know, by the time they grew to, the level of Castlevania Symphony of the Night that was like, what, mid-90s? Um, yeah, obviously bigger teams then as well, and obviously the West became a very viable market for them. So uh, going to be interesting to hear from Jeremy about kind of how he approached that as well and those cultural differences too. So uh, he's going to be coming up on the podcast. Jeremy Blaustein, our special guest, in around half an hour from now. Now, before we do that, of course, we bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology from over the last week. And uh, lots of big news stories to get our teeth stuck into this week. And uh, this one is quite a shocking headline when you read it, that apparently a new study's revealed that 87% of classic games are already on the critically endangered list. So these are basically games that are at risk of going missing forever. Yeah, this this was kind of a bit of a, a head turner for me because it's because of you kind of cast your mind back, especially for me, like 10, 15 years ago, especially around Xbox 360, PS3 kind of like days when a lot of games started to get remastered and re-released and, you know, digital versions, HD remasters and stuff like that. I remember thinking like, God, it's getting like Hollywood. Have they not got any original ideas? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, how many times are you going to remake or bring this game out again how many times are you going to bring paperboy out how many times are you going to bring resident evil 4 out but now reading this but only 13 percent of american games at least are actually available still on the market in like some sort of digital or updated form it's actually quite sad yeah um, i i think you're you're right to mention america as well because this is just a study no, it's just an american America. study isn't it yeah 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 and uh i think it's it's interesting because it's there's game preservation mm. and uh, there's also copyright and there's also stuff that's held within the companies. Yeah. So as you're saying, this is stuff that's available to actually get. So it's kind of like ha- have the companies decided to release some of these? Um, 
you know, have they gone through their old history? There, there could be tons out there. And it's interesting because there's these huge, huge, you know, archives of, of games and stuff being put up. And then there's also private collections. And it's it's the question, you know, are you breaking copyright law? Um, I know certainly in the Amiga scene, a lot of the pirated titles have kind of survived. And even and the only ones, really. Yeah, even when you get them, you know, they've still got the Cracktros on the front and stuff. And they've actually kind of survived because they've been spread through piracy. <laughs> um, mm. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting debate. I'd, I'd love to see a worldwide study, of course. Mm. I don't know if maybe the Japanese culture would be different in preserving them or the, or the um, European or British. Yeah, I, I imagine the Japanese companies, uh, especially like Capcom and Konami, they churn out a lot of these collections, you know, that you can still get on, you know, Xbox Series X, PS5, Steam and stuff like that. But, you know, I can't, the EA aren't releasing classic Mega Drive games, you know, that they put out. You know, there's no like Urban Strike and Jungle Strike collection or anything like that. The only way to play those games is the original hardware. And, and it's interesting because in the article on Time Extension... It or says, emulation. You, or emulation, of course, yeah. um, which is what Ravi was touching on. But it's like, it, the the, the, uh, the quote here is, imagine trying to watch Titanic, but the only way to watch it would be on VHS, on a VHS player. And I guess that's to kind of like for non-gamers to understand. But it's true, you know, I'm, I'm sat with my Mega Drive collection to the left of me right now. You know, there's like 100 games there and it's probably you know, probably a fair handful what you can still get on the Xbox and stuff like that. But I, I bet the majority of them are just, they're dead now. The only way to play them is the original hardware. And it never really occurred to me. Does that make sense? Because with cinema, yeah, I think it's, a, I mean, obviously I don't know the number. This is just speculation, but I imagine 13% of all films are still available to purchase well, in some way yeah, or another, digitally or physical. Cinema and stuff's a bit different as well, because mm. even like, I remember the BBC used to have this uh, policy of, um, uh, even with TV, you know, recording over the videos. Um, so they, well, those episodes of Doctor Who weren't missing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're like Doctor Who and Dad's Army and stuff was all kind of found random places. And uh, it was the same with uh, a lot of films as well. You know, film actually degrades as well. So I guess the, the life of the media is another thing, but the way this report is talking, it's talking about stuff that's on sale or that's available. Um, mm. So I guess, you know, these huge collections of ROMs that people have, which, uh, you know, uh, there's abandonware. That's what people say, but you know, it is still kind of copyrighted material. Um, so they wouldn't count in this one. Uh, no, it's talking about legal routes. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's talking about, yeah, the legal versions of them, not copyright, not uh, emulation. And the studies from the uh, Video Game History Foundation and the uh, that quote that you said then about the, the VHS tape of Titanic, that was from um, Kelsey Lewin, who you probably know from Metal Jesus' YouTube channel. She mm. used to do quite a lot with them. Um, yeah, and she's basically saying that. I mean, some people have actually commented on this, and this, this is a great quote here, and it says, it's not really the equivalent of only being able to watch Titanic on VHS. It's more the equivalent of being able to watch Stop on My Mom Will Shoot by Sylvester Stallone. Because yeah. the the big, I mean, you're always going to be able to get, you know, Pac-Man and Space Invaders on any platform, yeah. you know, or the amount of Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 has come out on pretty much every console I've owned for the last four generations. Mm. So I think, you know, in terms of those big, very famous games, they're probably always going to be available. You know, something like, like a blockbuster like Titanic. I, I'm, I'm just remembering the scene where his mum cleans the uh, Uzi. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think when I read that, I wouldn't mind watching that again, actually. But uh, <laughs> I bet it's not on Netflix. So that is probably a good comparison. Um, but yeah, I, again, it's kind of, I, I do see both sides of the argument, but also from, you know, the, the company's perspective. You know, if I want to buy a copy of like, you know, Iridium 2 or Z-Wolf, you know, some of my favourite Amiga games back then, you've got to think from their perspective, is it worth them putting that time and effort into upgrading them to run on modern hardware or re-releasing them? And a lot of them have got kind of rights issues, you know, it's different companies have bought our other companies and there's licenses that only last a certain amount of time. You know, we, we saw that with, you know, Outrun, you know, when the, the, the Ferrari licence kind of expired that, you know, Outrun 2 got took off the, um, off the Xbox Store, yeah, yeah. That, that licensing reasons. Stuff like the music. There's reasons why. The music yeah. for um, Crazy Taxi and all of that kind of changes over time. And I guess it's how much does a company care about it? You know, yeah. maybe they're... And how many copies are they going to sell? Yeah, yeah focused on really new products or something and they're not really bothered about their legacy. But I think it is important that if a company is not bothered about the games that they brought out 30, 40 years ago that they then allow fans to host them on, you know, ROMs, websites and archive.org and that kind of thing. Not the approach that Nintendo and, you know, increasingly Sega have had recently of kind of pulling them down, you know, games that are not available anywhere else. That that kind of feels unfair then and against preserving software. I think if they're moving on, they're like, look, we, d- we don't m- earn money off this anymore. We don't care about it. Here you go, have it, have fun, you know, download it as many times as you want. That's fair enough. But I think, you know, expecting a company to kind of upload all its back catalogue and still make sure it runs and everything is probably asking a bit too much. Um, but yeah, that's quite a shocking statistic. I wonder if that, you know, the 87%, if that includes a lot of kind of mobile games and stuff. And mm. I think that's only going to get worse, isn't it? Because a lot of mobile games are only available yeah. on a store for a, a limited amount of time. Flash and a lot of games, games are, and stuff like yeah, that as well. <laughs> games that need to be online as well when the servers get shut down, you know, they're basically not playable anymore. So um, yeah, I think it's definitely going to be a, a bigger problem as we go forward over the next couple of years. So if you're going to check out that um, study, quite an interesting read. I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com or just check your podcast app. Now this one is quite timely, Ravi, because um, when I was at your Amiga show that you put on in Nottingham a couple of weeks ago, I was chatting to uh, our mate Steve from Retro Passion because my Amiga 1200 has been behaving really weirdly over the last couple of weeks. So I can leave it on for like, you know, 24 hours. Have a demo running on it. It'll play flawlessly. No problem at all. Then I'll turn it off, leave it a couple of days, turn it back on. Then it'll hang every five minutes, which is really bizarre. And I've had it recapped. You know, I've got a new accelerator in there and everything. I had an ATX PC power supply running it. What, like kind of ATX converted to the Amiga Power yeah, supply. like a PC yeah. power supply. Yeah. So I've had that running it, which, you know, should have been powerful enough, but I've had that about 12, 13 years. And I think, you know, with a lot of kind of modern PC stuff, they're not really designed to last that long. So I was chatting to Steve and he said, um, well, it's probably the power supply. It's anything we could think of. So he actually loaned me one of his power supplies to test it out. It works actually. My, my machine's been solid for about a week now. So I've, I've paid him for that. Um, but actually that was the source of my problem, it seemed. The power supply. Now, the thing is, I mean, there are companies like Steve, you know, that are making new power supplies for the Amiga, but it is quite a limited market. And I think having really efficient modern power supplies for our retro hardware, that is something that's really important because really that is probably one of the the biggest points of failure, isn't it? I mean, I don't use many original power supplies now. The Commodore 64 was the first one I replaced because if you've got the original power supply from the C64, they're so badly made. All of those Commodore power supplies were badly made. I think literally... um I think they just like blasted it with glue. (laughs) um, Epoxy. Yeah, yeah. And I I remember having some that, you know, you'd accidentally kick 
and then you'd uh, reset your machine. And they're very heavy and they're huge as well. So um, I'm glad you've kind of looked into the world of new power supplies. One that I've been using on the Amiga is the Duo power supply, which is really tiny in form factor, and it supplies two Amigas off one little power supply, yeah. which is really cool. That, that, that's one good thing as well. I mean, I've got the same on my Mega Drive. I've got one plug that powers the Mega CD, 32X, and the Mega Drive itself, whereas, you know, back in the day, you needed three power supplies for that. Same with my Jaguar. I've got one that does the CD and the Jaguar itself. So I think, you know, that is definitely one technology that since the 80s and 90s, power supplies have come on a long way. So it's always nice to read about new products that are available, including a USB-C power supply that's coming out for the Amiga soon. Yeah, this looks absolutely amazing. Um, it's so small. Uh, it just looks fantastic. It clips into the back. It's USB-C. Now, um, I've been doing power for my Amiga laptop as well, and I know that uh, I kind of have a battery management unit in there when I'm powering off the lithium batteries. And they're saying here it's got monitoring and protection, which is, mm. is quite important because you've got like lots of Amigas have different add-ons. They have a kind of different de- devices that are all kind of draining power in different ways. And it is a, a bit of a power hungry beast as well. But um, being able to use USB-C is great because it's it's got like a small form factor. I don't know about you guys, but all of my stuff is USB-C at the moment. Um you know, Apart from my bloody iPhone, because Apple haven't changed yet. Yeah, well, uh, I think they're, they're, they're going to have to, actually. I think there's yeah. been a court, court ruling about that. But um, You you law, I think. Yeah, yeah uh, but this this just makes it convenient. It makes it really small. These things, you know, you could fit them in your pocket. It doesn't look like it's going to be heavy at all. It's got... Can you remember those power bricks on the Amiga back in the day? You could do bloody bench oh, presses. Oh, the Goliath one, which was blooming <laughs> yeah. huge, yeah. But this um, also enables MagSafe as well. So... Um, you know, when it's the magnetic uh, oh, like on USB-C. Yeah, so if you walk past the Amiga and you kind of hit the cable, the magnet would uh, disconnect. And, yeah. and it means, you know, you're not ripping anything out of walls and stuff. I really like this idea. I think it's really small and compact. I'd, I'd love to see what the price is and when it comes out. And, uh, you know, I DJ with the Amigas and even having that, Dual power supply is great, but two little USB-C things. Oh, my God. And uh, I also had a little thought about it. You know, those um, battery packs that you can get. I can run my um, MacBook off a battery pack through USB-C. So maybe this would be a solution to kind of running an Amiga in battery pack. That'd be good for your Amiga laptop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and I didn't realize it was so small. So really, I'm looking at the, the diagrams of it on their website, which is uh, retrousbpower.com. It is really just like a chunky USB stick, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, essentially. Yeah, but, and so, yeah. It's got the switch on the back, and then you just put it in, and that's going to leave so much room and, uh, you know, just desk space uh, for me personally. So I had it with my Commodore 64, God, probably about 10 years ago. I accidentally knocked the original power supply, you know, when, when I was using that off the table. Um, and there was no protection at all in those. So it literally fried the RAM on my machine. Oh, when it hit the ground. A power surge right through it, fried it. Looked like I got it repaired. Um, and now I'm using, you know, more modern power solution on that. So I think it is often one thing that we overlook, isn't it? We all want to get, you know, the best display cables and we'll buy, you know, remakes of controllers and new mice. But I think the power supply is really one of the most important aspects of your machine, isn't it? And keeping it healthy. Yeah. Um, and I, and I kind of like that it's not a weird standard. Like it's something that's yeah. been implemented everywhere. 
So like, you know, if, if you had these for other devices, say the Spectrum or the C64, um, you know, you'd be able to use your cables that you're already using with other stuff. I think, I think that's really important as well. Yeah, so this is going to be available for the uh, Amiga 500, 600, and 1200, um, and is expected in quarter three of 2023, so uh, not long to wait now. So you want to read more about that, hopefully. Like you said, I mean, it looks quite a simplistic device. I'm hoping the price on it is not too much. Um, hopefully not too many components in there, so it uh, could be a nice little uh, treat for your Amiga uh, to keep it running for many more years. It's called the Power Shark, so I'll link that in our show notes as well. Now, this is very cool. A, uh, a previous guest that we had on the podcast, and someone who's behind one of my all-time favourite games. You guys know that I'm a massive fan of Prince of Persia. You know, I still remember playing that when I was, got about 12 years old, going to my auntie's house with my mum. I've been a bit bored, and then I wander around the house, went up in the attic, and um, my auntie's husband, um, or my uncle, I guess he would have been. <laughs> so, yeah, he had like a, an old DOS machine. I thought you were going to say he had a Prince of Persia costume and I dressed up and started jumping <laughs> on the walls. He wasn't that cool. But he was in a band, so he'd always be out at night playing bars and stuff around Manchester. So I wandered up into his, his studio and I saw like an old DOS PC. So I thought, oh, I'll turn this on. Did a little like, you know, DIR slash W, so it was on the hard disk. Saw a game called Prince. I thought, oh, I wonder what that is. Played it. Got absolutely hooked on Prince of Persia that night. I was sat there for about three hours playing it. Um, then got it on my Amiga afterwards and still one of my all-time favourite games. And of course, before Prince of Persia, I mean, Prince of Persia was obviously praised for its, uh, you know, that rotoscoping, the animation of the main yeah, yeah, character. Yeah, kind but of then, early motion capture tracing over uh, yeah. Super 8 visuals uh, with uh, uh, pencils. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but it worked and it created that, uh, you know, the, the kind of flow and, and realism of the characters. That really fluid animation. And then other games like, you know, Flashback obviously used that technique afterwards as well. But before Prince of Persia, there was a game in 1984 uh, called uh, Karateka or Karateka. I don't know if said different pronunciations of that. I think we had Jordan on the podcast and he said Karateka. I'm sure that's how he pronounced it. Uh, but, I mean, that game was kind of the, the prototype of that Prince of Persia kind of animation. You know, the rotoscoping effect. And he made that on his Apple II when he was just a teenager. And he actually kept a lot of the stuff from back then. Because I think he based it on his brother doing karate. And I think his dad kind of posed in a gi. And, <laughs> like, you know, used him for some of the, uh, the the characters as well in the game. Um, and he released a book that he was nice enough to send me a copy of a couple of years ago. So it's a really interesting read. And great to see kind of how much from the game and the development he kept after all these years. So now to celebrate that, because obviously next year, 1984, is going to be... 40 years old. So it's very cool to see this news. It just got announced um, yesterday at the time of recording this. There's going to be basically a playable kind of documentary celebration of Karateka that's coming out on uh, modern platforms very soon. Um, now, this is by Digital Eclipse. Now, they were the team that were behind the um, Atari 50 compilation that came out last year. Um, I don't know if you guys have played that. I've got it on the, the PS5. Uh, no, I've well, not that played is, that. Yeah, it's so well done. It is literally like, you know... It, there's all sorts in there, you know, artwork from the games, documentation, the some of the original development notes and diagrams, and then you can play the game as well. So by the looks of this, they're going to be giving it, um, basically they want to do a, a deluxe remastered version, um, but then also they're going to be doing all this extra stuff as well that basically means it is a documentary of the history of the game, the development of it, that you can actually play alongside the game on your console. I, I like that idea that they've packaged in uh, four versions and they've also got a remaster mm. in there. But then you've got the whole background and the kind of documentary and the, you know, talking about how the music was created and scored as well and uh, how, how it was very much a, a kind of family 
uh, development. It, it looks really nice, this does. Yeah, and there's going to be another pen, original pencil tracings and the pixelated game characters in there too. There's going to be audio and video interviews with Jordan and his dad as well and kind of other gaming industry legends, you know, talking about the game and the effect it had on them. There's a couple of podcasts on there as well, talking about the music of the game, all the original design documents, excerpts from his journals back then. And there's going to be 14 playable games on it, the Apple II version, uh, the Commodore, the Atari versions, but also, interestingly, some kind of beta versions as well. They submitted to Broderbund back in the day. And also, there's going to be notes about the, the development from the prototype to the Gold Master as well. So I think anyone that's you know got an interest in that game and the, the history of gaming development... It's going to find this really interesting. Actually, um, I think this could be done with a lot more games. Yeah, um, interestingly, it seems they're selling it on Steam as well. Um, well, yeah. uh, at the moment, it's on Wishlist. But um, yeah, on Steam. And this is a wicked idea, kind of packaging packaging it all as one. Like, if you're a fan, this is going to be something essential, really. Yeah, so uh, I'm hoping that there'll be a Prince of Persia version of this as well, because I think even seeing those kind of previously unseen beaters and stuff i think is really i'd love to see it for something like lemmings as well or worms that that would be great really it's yeah tracking the history of it and a real celebration when you get these so you know we all see anniversaries coming around now more more than ever really it feels like all our favorite games are suddenly turning 30 years old or whatever um so i think yeah it is a nice way to kind of celebrate their legacy so like to see more of that kind of thing so if you'll wish list that now and that link it up and i'm sure it'll be out on uh you know usual platforms on uh PS5 and PS4 and Xbox and all that as well. So looking forward to that. Now, something else that's um, getting a bit of love. And uh, this one, though, is by a fan who loved the game Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, um, don't we all love that game? Definitely one of the best side-scrolling beat-em-ups, I think. But now there's going to be a version of it to a system that previously didn't get, the arcade version of this game. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is coming to the Sega Master System. Yeah, this this has been turning a couple of heads and... Uh... Like you say, who who doesn't love the TMNT arcade game? Let's be honest. Um, but the original got ported to the NES and then it sort of got ported to the SNES and the Mega Drive. We got Turtles in Time for the Super Nintendo. We got Hyperstone Heist for the Mega Drive, which they they were, you know, they were those were they were the arcade game essentially. But yeah, the uh, the poor old Master System ne- never never got a port of Turtles, never got a Turtles game or anything like that until now. So uh, Homebrew Coder Xfixium is uh, he's porting it to the Master System and uh, they're saying, well, he's saying, and you can see it when you watch the video, that it is actually a closer kind of port to the arcade version than the NES one ever was because mm. the Master System's actually got a bigger colour palette. The arcade game was such a bright, vibrant game and sometimes the NES can look a little bit washed out, uh, but the Master System has those really solid, bright colours as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in terms of the visual style of it, looking closer to the arcade version, obviously great to see, you know, the Master System getting some love. Because usually, you know, these kind of projects are usually for the Mega Drive and stuff like that. But like I say, yeah, kind of had its own version. But then they've also brought in um, Lewis the Sega Nerd, uh, who's a musician who's making the music for the game, porting the music for the game. Um, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to have a listen to it, but I absolutely love the sound of this and the direction it's going in because of it's definitely got the master system and kind of game gear eight bit, you know, well, it's using the hardware. So it's definitely going to sound like that, but it, it sounds very different to the arcade and the NES version, but I think it really, really suits it really well. And I'm impressed by how well 
this matches the arcade version of the game. Because, mm. you know, for an 8-bit system, I remember playing it on... Because um, I was quite surprised it never came out originally on the Master System. Yeah. So I played it on the, the Commodore Plus uh, 64, sorry, the Commodore 64. We had a version of it on that when, when my brother had a 64 when I was a kid. And I remember that being good. I think it was quite an impressive port to the 64, but graphically, nowhere near the quality of this. I mean, you've even got all the, the animations at the beginning and mm-hmm. the, the the character profiles, you know, that listen in the arcade. You've got even the animation at the start, you know, the cityscape and things like that too. And, I mean, looking at this at a glance, if you'd have told me this was a Mega Drive game, I'd have believed it. Yeah. This is jaw-droppingly good for, yeah. for the Master System. Yeah, 100%. I mean, at the moment, um, from the videos I've seen, they've not got, like, all the sprites. They're not fighting each other. It's not, like, in a massive playable no. state, is it, yet? Um, but that's you know visually it, it looks fantastic. You would you you wouldn't question it like you said if somebody said oh yeah this is a Mega Drive or it was a you know an early Mega Drive game um, I'd have a guess and say it's better it's better looking than like Old Beast maybe even Golden Axe as well mm. but a Mega Drive the color it's the color palette I think that's doing it for me you know it's got all these vibrant greens and purples and oranges and the first level when you're escaping the hallway in the fire and stuff like that um, I think there's even some kind of pseudo parallax scrolling in there as well um yeah you got like, the fire effect and fire stuff, at the bottom and stuff and... like that um and just kind of like the pixel graphics on it you know like the character selection screen like you say in the intro it all looks absolutely fantastic so i think this is going to be wicked when it's finally properly working and you know people are playing it on their ever drives on their you know on their master systems and stuff like that and that's a good thing if you've got an EverDrive for your Mega Drive as well, it can play yeah. Master System games on that yeah, too because, yeah, yeah. you know, it's backwards compatible. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking, it is just literally about 1 minute 58, isn't it, of like mm-hmm. the first level and the introduction. Um, I, I was kind of watching along to see if, you know, when the boulder comes down the stairs, <laughs> if yeah. that was in there. Um, but yeah, they haven't implemented that yet, but yeah. it be very cool. I mean, looking at how well they've done everything else, I'd be surprised if it was missing because otherwise it looks like pretty much a one-for-one one kind of port, doesn't yeah. it? You know, everything's kind of in there. So far, I mean, you're right. Some of the characters, some of the sprites, kind of the heads cut off when they're walking. Yeah, and I imagine that's you know obviously fix all that before the release. Yeah, exactly. Is only two player. They haven't got the four player on there. Yeah, we can't ask for everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, it looks very very cool. No uh, word of when it's going to be released yet. I imagine it's going to be. You know, I imagine you'd have a problem selling it. So Mm. probably a free download when it comes out. But um, yeah, early uh, in work peek at the game. So you want to check that out? I'll put that in our show notes as well. Now uh, (laughs) we often talk about impressive video games and uh you know seeing stuff like turtles on the the master system that's always something that makes me think wow i didn't realize that system could do graphics that good however this one is uh the complete opposite of that it is a challenge and apparently this has been going on since uh the mid 90s since 1996 people are trying their best to make the crappest spectrum games that they can for an annual competition (laughs) Now, this is a really interesting idea. The annual Crap Games competition is on for 2023. Yeah, this is uh, quite interesting. I've always found the the Spectrum games, they're always a bit quirky and there's always funny elements in it. So really cool to see that this is going on. Yeah, now this has been running since 1996. Now, the name of it is the comp.sys.sinclair Crap Games Contest. I imagine based on that name... It came from Usenet. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, Com.sys would have been a Usenet group back in the day. And the idea is basically people get together. It was, um, this, this is now hosted by a guy called Jamie Bradbury from Hull. Um, and he got involved in this seven years ago. And um, basically he wanted to make his own game. And that's the thing. A lot of us are, you know, we want to mess around with stuff. And if you guys were the same, we used to play around with stuff like shoot em up construction kit and stuff like that. And Amos, I was never very good at making games. But I think just being able to make a game and have people play it 
it's quite interesting. But basically, the idea of this is <laughs> so it was based on remember that advanced lawnmower simulator prank from back in the day. Yeah. It was in your Sinclair magazine. That was a an April Fool's where they talked about you know this game that didn't exist and then actually came out on their cover tape um, the month after. Um, and literally, the, the object of that game is I think you just press fire on your your joystick and then the lawnmower went left to right and you know <laughs> mow the grass nicely. And there were a lot of games kind of you know where the concepts were a bit crap you know you think of stuff like a power wash simulator that i know joe's a big fan of yeah well (laughs) also it it stems from that like magazine culture as well so um uh, with that there were there were kind of a lot of piss takey games um there was uh you know sensible train spotting's one that i remember um Mm -hmm. sim brick was another one as well which was a a brick simulator and and people love that but you're right there is a whole modern game scene of it i think um something like goat simulator um yeah it's is really good and and also these hard to control games as well like i don't know if you've played that octodad um yeah. that one's an a- absolute nightmare at the moment but people seem to kind of love the obscure or the or, or the strange uh, quirky kind of titles yeah and, and also there was that um cassette 50 compilation by cascade that came out back in the day there's 50 games and they're all terrible on there as well so that kind of inspired a lot yeah of there was too. a the firebird one as well called uh don't buy this as well yeah that was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing basically the aim of this is to uh, come up with the worst spectrum game that you can um and interestingly you've really got to try to make this bad because uh the person who makes the best game then loses the competition and has to host it next year so uh, really, you know, it is quite an effort to make sure that your game is terrible. And there's actually in this article on The Guardian that's covered this, they kind of talk about some of the um, the entries in the past. There's one called Pear Shaped that was a maze game. We had to just collect as many pairs as possible. There was a crap football with a digitised Desilinum character in there as well. There's also some ideas that just flat out can't work. Stuff like Sim City: the text adventure or <laughs> Blind Flight Simulator. There's another one as well. And there's a European Sandwich Hunt and Wackanun 2 or other games in this series. So this is open right now. Uh, and it just, it sounds an absolute giggle. And there is a website, um, which I'll link up in the show notes as well, if you want to kind of read more about the history of the Crap Games competition and some of the uh, the highlights of the last uh, 25 years or so this has been running. But yeah, what a funny idea. And I think you're right, Ravi. It's just kind of that, that British sense of humour that it ties into quite well. So, um, yeah, very quirky and very fun. So thank you to uh, Gareth for telling us about that on uh, our Discord server. And just a reminder, actually, that we are on Discord. You know, we're chatting away most of the week in there. And we have a little channel in there as well that is dedicated to uh, news stories. So if you spot any things, you know, around the interwebs over the week and you think, actually, that would be good for the guys to talk about, please feel free to uh, hop onto our Discord and uh, post it in the channel. And uh, hopefully we'll talk about it on a future episode. Right then, our special guest, Jeremy Blaustein, coming up in just a moment, uh, talking about bringing Konami games and lots more to the West. He'll be our special guest. Before we do that, let's give a massive thank you to our longest-running sponsor of the Retro Hour podcast, and that is our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books. Now, uh, I was hanging out with your dad, Ravi. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in trouble now. This, yeah, this is at Ravi's Amiga show, because your parents came along, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, they came along and, to check um, it out, yeah. And Bitmap Books had a stand there, and uh, your dad was fawning all over the quality of the books. He couldn't believe how good they were. Um, I was kind of stood there with him, you know, explaining kind of what they were and stuff as well. He was really impressed. And I think that's the thing. I mean, I've got a big collection of Bitmap Books books, and whenever, like, friends and family come over, if there's one on the coffee table, it will always be something that people pick up. 
Just because I think that they're just so beautiful, aren't you, they? You're like, kind of really drawn to it as well with the colours yeah. and, and some of the amazing screenshots that they have in there. And one of their books that's um, had a really good reception, in fact, I think they sold out because they're doing reprints of it at the moment. This is um, A Guide to Japanese Role-Playing Games. Now, this really opened my eyes as well because I've got a copy of this. And I must admit, it wasn't really a genre that I was that familiar with. I know, Joe, you kind of... You played a lot of the JRPGs back in the day. Still a genre that you love, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the history of it and mm. kind of like that, it's going to sound really weird, but like the whimsicalness of JRPGs and the artwork of it is just beautiful. And to kind of see that like Dungeons and Dragons-esque uh, artwork, but from the, you know, the east side of the world, I, I really love it. And kind of like those like manga and anime elements to it. I think this captures it really, really beautifully with, you know, with game box art, which is obviously being presented really beautifully in the book here. Yeah, and it reviews games as well, mm. and it covers the the entire history of JRPGs from 1982 to 2020, and it's got, you know, games like Fire Emblem, uh, roguelikes like Mystery Dungeon, the first-person dungeon crawlers like uh, Etrian Odyssey's in here too, and there's articles on the genre, the music, the art as well, and this is a massive book. It's actually 652 pages in length, 370,000 words. And it's got contributions from fans, journalists as well. Really, this is designed to be the ultimate coffee table book on Japanese role-playing games. And uh, like you said, I mean, the artwork in here is just absolutely gorgeous. You know, really, they put it on really nice paper. I think it's called lithographic paper, the bitmap books you use. So really, the images pop and it gives them that, you know, the treatment that they really deserve. So if you're interested in the history of uh, this Incredible genre that really didn't get explored all that much, didn't get explored enough over here in the UK back in the day. This is definitely worthwhile read uh, if you want a good book to uh, read this summer. A guide to Japanese role-playing games, the reprints. You can uh, order that right now and uh, check out the rest of their retro gaming books as well. You know, support our sponsors. It helps the podcast out. And uh, their website is bitmapbooks.com. And we thank Sam and the team from Bitmap Books for their continued support of our show. Now, speaking of supporting the podcast, a little reminder that we do have a patron as well, you know, which uh, you might think, oh, you know, supporting the guys on Patreon, that's fair enough, helps them keep the lights on and stuff. But we're not just take, take, take. We give back a hell of a lot, I think, don't we, guys? We do, we do. We are actually just about to record our, is it a 36th episode of the After yeah, Hours? I, yeah. Straight after this, where we're going to be doing our top five overrated games controversial um, controversial <laughs> a bit controversial that one i might get told off for a few i've got a feeling after some of mine yeah there might be a few, few patrons cancelling after it I yeah hopefully not <laughs> don't get any ideas <laughs> we've banned but rise yeah. of the robots rise of the robots we have banned rise happening. of the robots absolutely banned rise of the robots but yeah no we, we we do try to give back as well you know we give an ad free episode um we also put a few extra news articles in usually two or three every single week for our patreons um, sometimes the episode comes out a couple of days early and of course my favorite part every patreon is welcome to our hangout which we do usually the last weekend of every month um mm -hmm. where we all just get together on a hangout on google hangout and we just we just chat like I, you know i was gonna say absolute s-h-i-t really we just chat about everything don't we we, end up, Anything we, goes, we don't just talk about retro games we talk about technology we talk about films we talk about adverts. We talk about absolutely everything because we've all become friends on there and everybody is welcome. It's not like the slaughtered lamb. You come on and we go, oh, who's that joining? Everybody yeah. is welcome. You can come on. You can just watch. You can come on. You can show your games uh, collection off. You can come on camera. You can come on and, you know, not, not come on camera, but still join in. Everybody is absolutely welcome. And uh, yeah, we do that for about two hours, usually on a Sunday evening. We've been trying a few Fridays for some, you know, people across the world and stuff like that. 
But yeah, everybody's welcome to that who signs up as a patron. I absolutely love it. Yeah, so you want to join our wonderful patrons community, uh, all the details are selling right now. And a very good time to do it if you want to get that um, access to all the back catalogue of the After Hours podcast for your gold member above and the newest episode. And get invited to the Hangout that's coming up in two weeks. All the details are at theretrohour.com. Right then, next, our special guest talking about bringing Konami games to the West with this week's guest, Jeremy Blaustein. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour, and we're joined by our very special guest today, Jeremy Blaustein. How are you doing, Jeremy? Hey, I'm doing great. Great to be here. Good stuff. Thanks for coming on. So, the first question we always ask all of our guests is if mm, you can oh. cast your memory back and think of what your earliest video game memory might have been. Wow, okay. That's the first time I, I think I've ever been asked that, so <laughs> let, me try to go, let me try to go back. It starts to get into the question, I'm so old, it starts to get into the question of what is a video game? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? There was a game called, I think it was called Tombstone, a very primitive like uh, side thing, uh, two Yosemite Sam-looking characters shooting each other. Mm. <clears throat> Drop dead. Um, there was a game called Death Race, like yeah. 2000, I think. Um, you run over uh, these little moving, tiny little moving stick figures, mm. and they turn into uh, gravestones. <clears throat> there was a game called Seawolf. I remember where mm. you look through a periscope and you shoot up a like a torpedo, just goes straight up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Incredi- yeah. Incredibly slow moving. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then there was also uh, at home before, uh, you know, before anything came out, like Atari. I was playing mm. those little Mattel um, football games. Football, it, basically, it was just a, a small sliver of light that you would <laughs> manipulate in four directions. And mm. so in the case of uh, American football, you'd be, you know, kind of just going up, right, up. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. But, hit, you know, jamming them very hard and fast, you know. Mm. And there was a mm. basketball one. or, And then, uh, yeah, and then uh, the uh, Odyssey came out. We got the mm. Odyssey back in uh, probably it was... Maybe 76 or 77. Yeah. yeah the Mat- Mattel Odyssey had three games. Pong, tennis, and uh, I think it was like uh, squash or something. You know, they were all mm. <laughs> almost identical. So you grew up in, uh, yeah. I read you grew up in Long Island. Was there yeah. much of a gaming scene around this point that the arcades kind of start to blow up? Were you a big fan of them? Yeah, I was a big fan of them. And they did blow up then in the 70s. And, um, you know, when I first started going, there were older teenagers that'd be playing the games and uh, it was always a little intimidating it was it was a mixture of pinball and, and arcade games and then yeah certain things like space invaders started coming out and i would let's see how old was i when space invaders came out um maybe 12 something like that mm, yeah I'm, I'm not really sure 12 13 well you you also studied uh, japanese at university I, I tried to learn japanese once it's really tough like um what what made you decide to want to study the language Oh, well, it was actually, um, it's kind of embarrassing to admit the, the reason for, for, for doing it. I, I, it wasn't, most of the people that were studying Japanese then, it was because of business, much like Chinese mm. to now. It was, Japan was really economically strong. But no, actually my first choice uh, at the university uh, was Welsh. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and um, my motivation was simply that I wanted to speak the most unusual, you know, difficult weird language <laughs> because I thought it would be, you know, at least I, I think I, I, I left high school feeling very much like um, kind of cookie cutter-ish education mm. and, you know, university seemed like a, an opportunity to 
get something strange in there that I, I knew would at least set me into a, an interesting direction. I didn't know mm. what, you know, but the Welsh teacher, thank God, you know, I thank, thank God to this day, she advised me against it strongly. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Welsh wasn't, uh, yeah. Welsh wasn't that massively huge back then. Um, now there's stuff like, you know, mm. they teach Welsh at schools and um, yeah, there's, there's lots more Welsh language. Yeah. No Welsh video games yet. Um, yeah. Unfortunately. And uh, I don't think there's a lot of economic opportunity if you study Welsh. Yeah. I, I think, I know they've, kind of reintroduced obviously with us in england not far from wales they've reintroduced that some tv channels are in welsh and stuff like that in wales again yeah it was but dying outside for of wales, a while it's there. Like, yeah. yeah but out, outside <laughs> of wales what are you gonna do yeah, yeah. exactly so were you like a, you know kind of like were you in the mindset of right i'm gonna go to uni i want i want to learn a different language which is fantastic Ugh. i think that's that's amazing and it's amazing the career you built out of it but were you kind of like going in with like okay, I'm going to learn a language and I'm going to get into video games. I'm, you know, was there ever kind of like a, no, a career no, no, aspiration no. or no. did that just happen? Mm-hmm. Did it? No, it just happened. <laughs> just oh, happened. Okay. I, uh, so I started studying Japanese. The first, first year I wanted to study Japanese. My father wouldn't let me because he thought it was too wildly unrealistic as to be mm. simply a waste of money that the idea of learning Japanese was so yeah. like, ridiculous. And so I started my second year at, mm. at uni. And so I graduated and um, tried to, you know, find a job. Didn't work out very well. Went to graduate school for a couple of years. And after I left there, I um, wanted to get back to Japan. I was studying Japanese all those years, you know. I wasn't yeah. very good the first year in Japanese. It was tough, mm. you know, really tough. Second year, I started to be like, mm, maybe I can, you know, maybe I can do this. Were you a big fan of like Japanese culture? Because I guess this was, I guess mm. this was a, uh, the mid eighties, kind of late eighties. Yeah, yeah, this was, uh, yeah. I mean, I graduated from the university in '85, so I was just talking about this the other day with my with my twin brother. As a matter of fact, um, with regards to the question, were we fans of Japanese stuff? We were, we were tremendous fans. Mm. But the thing was that it's it's not like the anime. There, there mm. were, you know, there weren't really any anime that we we, we couldn't watch any anime. Yeah. What we were watching was Saturday morning cartoons. So we were watching Battle of the Planets and mm. Kimba the White Lion and, um, you know, Speed Racer and mm. Tobor the Eighth Man and uh, things like that. And they were all Japanese cartoons. They were all Japanese. Mm. So, yeah, I was a big fan. Of, but but I don't think that as a kid, I knew that they were Japanese. Yeah. You know? I, I, yeah, I, I was the same. It was, you know, only the last couple of years that I realized that Obviously, Transformers, the animation isn't Japanese, Mm -hmm. but Transformers as a toy, as a product, was Japanese. And it's amazing how much stuff you didn't realize kind of came from that, that culture in the 80s, which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this stuff was all, if we're talking about, um, we're talking about stuff that was, came out originally in the early 60s. Yeah. And then stretched into the 70s. So we were watching, you know, really different generations of things Mm. and- um, it's also interesting, yeah, because it, it it ties into the economics of the of Japanese development and stuff too. Animation was expensive to to to, mm. to have done in America, you know, and so Japan yeah. after the war, you know, it was very low cost of labor. You know, it'd be like mm. it would be like getting an, your animation done in you know Vietnam or Indonesia or something now, you know. And these things were picked up not because they were great. Um, you know, nobody thought, oh, these are so great, the kids will love them. They were picked up by business guys you know they were picked up uh, cheap and then they uh slammed together some kind of a, a localization 
they did a localization. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they, they did the voiceovers. <clears throat> and it was brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Spider-Man cartoon mm-hmm. from Japan, the, yeah. the first ones, you know. Fantastic Four, all of those. Super um, Friends. Yeah. Partic- particularly, I could because um, I was thinking that I'm really in the same uh, career as those guys, if you think about mm-hmm. it, you know. So, yeah, let's get on to the video games. So, you know, how, how did that come about? So... I'm, you know, looking at your your Moby games, looking at your Wikipedia mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and it's saying, you know, you started at Jellico and then moved to Konami. What's the yeah. story there then? So how did you kind of get into the industry? What what what's the story? Yeah, I think that um Jellico had a um, a branch office in Chicago. And right. I was living in the Chicago suburbs. And um there, there there might have been a job, you know, a job wanted. There might have been a job wanted ad that I replied to. I, I mean, I can't unimaginably really primitive times. I mean, trying to get a job back then. I mean, you're talking about when I was trying to get a job back then, it'd be like, you have to go, you print your resume and you like, yeah. literally bring your resume to different places. Or you'd look in the, the yellow pages, you'd go to the library and get great big stacks of yellow pages, you know? And so anyway, um, I interviewed and I just was a lover of video games. And the boss of the place was this guy named Howie. Howie yeah. Rosenstein, Rosenbaum or Rosenstein, and he mm-hmm. he was the guy. He did the the uh, the sound effects on Cubert. I was wondering what you were doing then. Um, like, what were you doing at then the company? They they gave me the position title of associate producer, but that just meant you know do whatever. My my job duties were essentially you know the way it worked is that the games there was R and D in Japan, you know, and they were making they would make games, but you know the America. American audience and the European audience, um, they were really an afterthought. You know, these guys were making, you know, pixel, you know, 16-bit pixel, you know, art games. And they would let us know, okay, for the next uh, fiscal year, in the first half of the f- next fiscal year, we've got, you know, this thing, which is, a, you know, it's a monkey running around in an adventure. You know, and mm. it's, called, it's called this, and, you know. Um, and we've got this. And, we, of course, we've got bases loaded three. And we've shot, you know, shot our hand. You know, they didn't call it Shatterhand. They would give us these things with these weird Japanese titles and say, what do you think? Which ones do you want to pick up? Which ones do you think you can sell in America? You know, mm. and subsequently, you can make some requests for changes, graphical changes. And so we would we would have meetings. We'd talk about, like, what is this weird, you know? Okay, so what is that thing? It's a monkey, you know, with <laughs> a, cr- a crown on its head, you know, holding a scepter. Uh and so we wound up making, it was the uh, very famous Chinese, uh, what is that? It's appeared in so many uh, so many games, this Chinese tale with the, the Monkey King. Yeah, uh, it's what, yeah, I know which one you mean. It's what the Dragon Ball Z yeah. and all that's like loosely based yeah, on, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. So I, if I recall correctly, and this is a great sign of the times, this is a great story. So we would get this game and it was, you know, was, I can't remember what it was called in Japanese, but um, Saren or something. And we looked at it. We're like, well, what is it? What story is? We don't, you know, we have to apply something to some paint to it so it will work in America, right? Mm. Work in the West. Someone came up with the idea that this guy, he, if we, if we added a couple of pixels on his head, we could change the crown into a like a, a feather headdress, and we'll change the scepter in his hand to a uh, a tomahawk. And they called the game. <laughs> this is this is the brilliant part. <laughs> this, uh, they called the game Wampum. Like wampum. you, yeah, right. You yeah. got it because yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the double meeting, right? 
So would you would you get sent like you know when the games would come over or the art and everything would all kind of come over for the for the localization? Mm. Would you kind of get like a this is what we want it to be or a how to? No, or is it just first of all, it would be wrong to call it a localization. You know that word didn't come about for another like ten years after that. Mm. There was no text. You know, it's just like. Mm. You know, a guy running around, bonk, 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 you know. <laughs> like the localization was the change in the pixels and the right. giving of title and and the and the box art. So how did yeah. you move to Konami? What's the story there? Like how did how did that develop? Well, I was only a Jalic over three months because I got fired for being, you know, like an angry teenage teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got mad I got mad at my boss one time. Yeah. And uh, he, he fired me on the spot. So um, <laughs> So that was just like, well, okay, how am I going to get back to Japan? I got to get back to Japan. I got to get out of here. I got to get back to Japan. And so, I don't know, maybe a year later or something, I I got a, a gig teaching English mm. in Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, anything was fine as long as I got back. So I taught English for a year. Uh, and then they didn't pick up my contract because uh, half the students loved me, half of them hated me. Right. Half of them lo- loved that I was passionate. The other half like were afraid of me because I, you know, I'd be like, and I talked too much. I spoke too much Japanese too. They didn't like that. So then I, I rushed, you know, like desperate, what's, you know, what am I going to do? By that time, my twin brother um, had been working at Konami in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. And so he spoke to a Japanese person that was there at the time. And uh, I got an interview at Konami in Tokyo and, you know, I, you know, tearfully told him how much I loved Konami games, you know, and Castlevania and such, such, such. I played it, you know. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So they, 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 they took me in. And what was the interview process like there, if you remember? Yeah, I do remember. Um, you know, it was like a classic. It was like you go into a, you know, a glass office room with a guy mm. at a table and a different couple different people would come and talk to you. And I remember the the Bucho, the, the my eventual boss came in. He was the last guy to interview me. And yeah, he was the one, I guess he, I, I moved him by my story of how much I loved video games. Yeah. I don't know. I was lucky. I was just super lucky. I mean, no ifs, ands, and buts about that. What, um, what was the difference like then working <clears throat> for oh, a, it, a Japanese no, was, uh, company? Yeah, great question. Great question. Um, I'll tell you, I I didn't get into the right um, division. I wanted to make video games, but I got hired by the International Business Division. And what they were doing was, they were doing the Japanese side of what I described before, which was they would send, we would send the games to american europe and say what do you think which ones can you sell what kind of you know only now i was in japan um but besides that you know i was wearing a suit and it was in it was not in the same building as r&d it was mm. yeah it was on a floor with you know accounting and sales and the legal department um the president of the company was on the floor and it was very buttoned down in the mornings we would do exercises and there would be an announcement and and so we were i wasn't you know i wasn't I didn't feel very close to the production of the games at first. And I, I was, you know, I was also doing like shipping. I was doing shipping numbers and stuff like that, really mm. businessy stuff. And then, um, but the thing I was, I was the only foreign employee there. Uh, oh, wow. There might've been, there might've been some, you know, a few, um, I think there was a couple of Chinese people, but I was the only foreigner that spoke English, I, I guess mm. I should say. And uh, so eventually R&D would start to, uh, you know, be like, hey, what you know what's this like what's the animaniacs <laughs> but i mean at that point uh they, there had been so many i i do americans like it started with you know what do what do americans like do americans like this would they like this and you know i was the only one to uh 
really to, to be there. And I spoke good Japanese. Mm. So I got closer and closer to deal with R&D. And, and then they would, um, I would have to write, do, you know, really simple translations because there wasn't a lot of text back then. Mm. But uh, I would write, like I wrote the script for Batman and Robin, right? I wrote this, you know, the uh, script for Contra Hardcore or, you know, things like that. Did a did a couple of voice recording things, uh, and then I, I I oversaw the localization of uh, Snatcher, which was the big the big one that mm. got me into localization. Really, yeah, that that leads really nicely. So I was going to say, you know, kind of what was your involvement in Hot Contra Hardcore, Spike Master yeah. Mars, Sparkster, and stuff like that. So and those are small enough that I could do them, yeah. you know, without much time. But Snatcher, um, they were porting it from you know the uh, PC like, engine, the, yeah, PC. No, no, not the PC engine. The, this Japanese uh, hardware. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Uh, name I can't recall. And then it went to the PC Engine. That's when Kojima wrote the third, the third part of Snatcher. The, uh, the MSX. It was the MSX was the was original. It. Yeah. Yeah. And then he did the, the, the PC Engine, which was a Japanese version. Uh, and then he added part three. And that's the one that I played and said, well, we got to you know, bring this over. Because mm-hmm. they, they brought me in one day to R&D and they said, what do you think about this? And I put on headphones and I sat down you know, for this like four hour experience and five mm-hmm. hour experience. Um, and I was so, so blown away because I had never played a, even a, a CD ROM game of, you know, so anything with that, that kind of music or that kind mm. of um, size of data or voice. So I was completely amazed and the porting of it to the Sega CD, they had to redo all of the art. It was completely unusable because of dimensions or something or something, palettes or something on. Uh, so, they made a special requisition to bring me over from the business department to R and D for I don't know about two or two or three months. I can't mm. recall. I can uh, imagine that you've seen some quite bad translations yeah. in your time as well. Well, this um, wasn't uh, this wasn't one of them. Scott, no, it's not- Scott, <laughs> Scott speaks perfect Japanese, and uh, he's an old timer. He speaks perfect Japanese, and he really applied himself to it really well. Um, I added a lot of things. Uh, I added quite a lot of. Uh, other text and you know checked his work and made some tiny changes probably but uh i also added a lot of um easter eggs and i had to write like all of the text for the you know like the jordan computer and stuff like that but yeah, yeah scott did it um the only what the only thing i contributed uh, besides you know overseeing that was the voice direction was there um did you work much with hideo kojima at this time then did you did you meet him because obviously this is one of his first kind of massive games snatcher was no i i I didn't i didn't work with him particularly much he he wasn't involved in the um the porting over he was he was in kobe and we were in tokyo um i would see him from time to time come into the office um and i would see him from time to time but we never really worked together in any Mm. way you know we met a few times and, you know, I met before, uh, translating Metal Gear Solid with him a couple of mm. times, but he was never, he was never in, interested in any way. And at the time he had no conception of anything outside of the Japanese audience, I would say. Did you, um, expect Snatcher? You know, obviously it's got its deep roots kind of into, oh. you know, anime. Um, and like you say, not much out of you know Japanese culture, but did you expect it to become such a cult classic? Because especially no, no. here in the in the UK, you know, it's it's no. become such a sought after classic game. No, I didn't. No, I mean, I expected to sell. I mean, we only sold like a couple thousand units, or at, at yeah. most, yeah. nobody bought it, mm. um, which was partially because of the Sega CD didn't sell well. But mm. nevertheless, it, it didn't even sell as well as like 
what was that horrible like sorority girl oh uh night trap oh night trap yeah, yeah, then, was, it, yeah. Then, then i guess i expected it would get night trap numbers yeah but it did very very poorly and the magazines were kind to it got good reviews but no i didn't expect it to achieve this level of cult status although listening to those scenes i mean i think it's great like the voice actors killed it so that they killed it and mm. yeah it's like a it's a really fun game it's one of my favorites well, how how did your role end up evolving when you started working on Metal Gear Solid? Well, uh, no. So the thing is that um, when I was at Snatcher, I, I was working at Konami. I was in Tokyo working for Konami, and mm. uh, I left Konami. I wasn't oh, wow. even there for. I wasn't even there for two years. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, um, it felt like much. It felt like five years at least. But mm. um, no, so I you know I I uh, returned back to the states and. Uh, the first game I translated as a freelancer for Konami was, um, it was Vandal Hearts. And then uh, second, I think, was Castlevania Symphony of the Night. And then I believe it was Snatcher. Uh, pardon me, uh, Metal Gear. So just uh, touching on Castlevania Symphony of the Night there, um, and, you know, <laughs> some of the translations in that have become a bit infamous over the years. Um, that, you know, the yeah. opening scene with Dracula and Richter, um, is it? Can you shed some light on that at all? The translation kind of there was it. Was it a difficult process or? Yeah. Uh, no. You know the thing I, I I mostly these days try to tell people in order to make it understood why why those choices were made. Um, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, which was that I came from a background when remember what I was saying at Jalico, how our job was to consider this game for this audience, right? So to me, it was always, I, I think that I conceived of them as separate pieces of work, you know, necessarily. Mm. I mean, in a way, you know, if you're making changes, it's a different thing. If you're putting it in English, it's a different thing. So to that extent, it's already a different thing. And so, and in an environment where there was no internet and there was no idea at all, if you told me that, that there would be tens of thousands of people who like look over old translations or mm. you know that kind of thing I, I wouldn't even understand what you're talking about like it's completely inconceivable so for me the the english the u.s version was the u.s version and that's the environment i came from and so i never considered especially in those early games what will people say if they look at the japanese and then look at this and mm. I, I don't think that actually i don't think that they should you know in a, in a perfect world I don't really think people should necessarily be poking around to that, you know, mess mm. and then on Twitter, like, and making like semi careers out of pointing out, uh, you know, translation choices that were made of mm. necessity in 30 seconds when you're, mm. you know, you're spending 30 hours to piece together, to edit together a, you know, a hit piece on, you know, somebody's translation, for example, mm. you know, to, it's out of scale. So, anyway, so uh, back to your question, Castlevania, that scene, when I got to the infamous line, you know, I, I, I had, I must have had a playable version because I say that because I, I was aware of the, yeah, no, for sure, no, I played play the Japanese version. I know I did. So I played the Japanese version, and it's like you get you get to the first scene, and it's like a big scene. It's like Victor's meeting with reading Dracula. You know, throws down that wine glass in that classic animation that you know was it was it was even more you know sort of dramatic than seeing it you know it's mm. a new game you know and i read the japanese and i just couldn't 
I couldn't think of, you know, I'm trying to think of good English lines, really. I mean, I'm, yeah. in a way, my Japanese brain is reading the line in Japanese and absorbing, okay, it has this information, it has this feeling. But more likely than not, it's a line which is evocative of an earlier line. You know, when, mm. when, when, we, when we read books, authors choose, you know, words and stru- you know, sentence structures in, in particular ways because it, it reverberates for us. But if you just translate something, it's not going to, mm. you know, it's, it's just not going to work. And so the line is just some kind of line like, we shall see the results of what happens by who dies, or, you know, something like yeah. that. And it's just like, I, I could not. And then he throws down a wine glass, you know? And to me, it's like, it's like, it's just a crap line. And I, I couldn't think of any way to do something with it. And it seemed such an important, and you know, and here's Dracula and he's, you know, he's lived hundreds of thousands of years, you know, he's yeah. not going to just say some throwaway line. And so I, I decided I'll, I'll find a quotation. I'll find a great obscure quotation. And that's what set me. And I think they did a search for, you know, in, like in a quotation book, like they had, t- you know, humanity or man or something you know i looked yeah i looked up you know because i was trying to find something deep you know mm. and i stumbled on that on that line yeah and i and thought it it captured his you know kind of like mocker mocking in nature and so yeah. then i used that i tried to make the rest of his speech match that mm. <clears throat> character you know so you know once you've done that like the process of translating or, it so you've had you know you've 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 found that mantra if you will that that quotation does that then go back once you've put it in the game? Does that then go back to approval to Konami, or is it just kind of like you have the fi- you had the final say and it was done? Did Ooh, they trust? Well, did they, was that was that trust there, or was it just, or does it go back to quality? Well, the the, the simple answer is that I don't know. I okay. don't know, but I can I can yeah. tell you what I suspect. I can mm. tell you what I suspect was the way things were then and how things would be now. That's mm. what I can tell you. So mm. what I what I suspect would, was that. There simply wasn't anyone to read over my text, of course. Yeah. No one no one would be qualified to do it. And it would take a long freaking time. Mm-hmm. And it would just be like, you know, they like it would be questions everywhere. Mm-hmm. What does this word mean? What is this? Why do you use this? And so they and they have a schedule. So no, it was just passed right along. In those yeah. in those times there was no LQA, which is linguistic quality assurance. Okay. But now it would be checked over many, many, many times in the cycle of uh, my company, Dragon Daily, for example, uh, a game localization company located mm. here in Osaka. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we, we'll, we'll, you know, we we check things over on multiple levels, and then the, the, this is before the, the translation is even submitted, and then after it's submitted, there's a process of LQA and QA, where game players play it with the text implementing mm. into it if there, if there are bugs or strange strange instances it's we goes back to us we smooth it out sometimes when things are um, well no i'll leave that for a different time but yeah that's that's generally what would have happened now and so mm. um more likely than not it just depends on the client you know some clients yeah. have people that understand that the text needs to be punched up and mm. some people don't understand it at all and they they actually will say to you um, can you you know make this more like the Japanese? And we're like, okay, yeah, we'll we'll make your text worse. <laughs> you want? Well, I was wondering, um, like in Metal Gear Solid as well. How did you uh, 
approach like the huge range of subjects so they had you know nuclear nah, technology yeah, uh, international relations all of that it was hard i i did a lot of research i i, I like to do research i like actually i like that process a lot so um but yeah um koji masan he just that's what he does he, he does huge amounts of research in different fields and as you know he has characters speak on those subjects for long periods of time you have to kind of backtrack <laughs> it's difficult to follow in the heels of someone's research because you know you don't know exactly which strange trails that they went down mm. and when you're doing it in a different language um generally in the case of military technology it is really hard because english would have a very specific term you know like the name would be in english ramian and the japanese would be kind of a a more basic dumbed down version of the technical jargon in English. And so it was actually really hard to work backwards and figure out what the original, you know, because many of yeah. these things, there, there was no, there was no dictionaries that were talking about, you know, the technology of metal that changes, you know, dudes and temperature. But uh, when I read about it, I knew Kojima must have sought it somewhere, you know, mm. but it, these things were not easy to find. He, he yeah. was, he he was always trying to get really, really cutting edge stuff. And I, I was always so, I was so nervous about getting it wrong. I mean, these things about like the, um, the different security levels in nuclear facilities. I knew Kojima was reading something, but it's not like he, he, he would just say, Oh, just, you know, here's what I read. <laughs> I never mm -hmm. talked to him. So for a period of six months, I just did a lot of work. Yeah. Maybe researching well, some of the things he might have researched and some of the rabbit holes. He might have gone yeah. down, but I guess you just don't know. You're just there exactly. in the office, exactly. just trying to make it as best as possible. Exactly. You know, and the thing is, it's like, um, I also don't know what inspired him exactly. You know, he mm. he's dealing with, you know, Japanese cultural icons. Generally speaking, as a, an author writes what they know. You know? Yeah. And if you look at who, who in the voice actors that he used, you can get kind of an idea of what his snake was. Yeah. Right. Well, what am I going to do? You know, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't bring that to you. And mm. I mean, he never said to me, you know, let's do Clint Eastwood. I, I, he wasn't going from Clint Eastwood. I was going from Clint Eastwood. Yeah. You know? It's just, is it just so, a case of that's how you read the script and how you read the game and who it's you a kind of It's envisioned? a combination. It's a combination of that and uh, what I thought would work and what I thought. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you have to choose a voice when you write something. And your character can't be inconsistent from the beginning to the end and so you start to get a, an image of that character and then you simply have him speak in the way that you're imagining that you know yeah now i have a skeleton in japanese right if it says you know if it says in japanese yes i will do that right i still have to ask myself well how am i going to write the you know how would this character say yes i will do that? so obviously metal gear it was a you know, we mentioned earlier on snatcher no. was kind of like the kind of beginnings mm. of like like cinematic storytelling and gaming. Metal yeah. Gear Solid was such a huge step in the industry, you know, we're 98, 99, and, and you know, the depth of the story. Were you pleased with, you know, the kind of end yeah. result and the translation and the feedback you got when it came to the West? Yeah. First of all, I was, I was still blown away by the game. I mean, I was, mm. I was psyched to translate this thing. It was very, very exciting. And um, was I pleased? Yeah, I was very pleased. <laughs> mm. Was there many changes that needed to be made kind of for a Western audience? You know, was there anything you kind of had to like balance with translating the game and anything you kind of had to maintain from the original meaning? 
to a Western meaning, or was it was it was it quite relatable? Well, I wouldn't say it was quite relatable. Parts of it were, parts of it were mm-hmm. not. I mean, yeah. How how am I going to find you know Psychoman is relatable? You know, or, yeah. You know, or like multiple <laughs> like no, it wasn't it wasn't relatable. But I think I got the campiness of it. You know, yeah. I think I think that you know, like I said, I grew up watching Japanese cartoons and. Mm. I'm the same age as Kojima. So I never, I always felt like I got him, you know? I never really felt like he was hard to get. Although, yeah, like I said before, it, um, it wasn't that the stuff was unfamiliar. You know, it's more like, take a Revolver Ocelot. Yeah. Well, think about this for a minute. <clears throat> this is uh, the result of Kojima-san seeing, you know, I don't know, 60s spaghetti westerns or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. But now he's watching it in Japanese with subtitles that, believe me, if you've read Japanese subtitles, they don't, you know, they don't exactly flesh out a character. But it's got the meaning in there. So, he, mm. you know, you can follow the story. But how that appealed to, how it, how it entered Kojima's brain and mixed with other stuff, and I can't say. And then he's projecting it then out. He's trying to make a game which is evocative of this. And yet he's doing it for a Japanese audience. So, you know, you're playing with a lot of weird, you know, weirdness, <laughs> you mm. know. And But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, I saw it as, um, I guess I would, I think of it as a kind of a, a cultural um, sniff test hurdle. Okay. But what I mean by that is if we're working within like a, a genre like spy, for example, you know, we have certain things. We've got James Bond and we've got, you know, whatever, you name it, you know. Particularly in the world of like military stuff, you know, war films and some like that, Americans have a rather high bar at this point, having been at war basically our entire history, and we watch a lot of it on TV, and it gets pretty technical, you know. So I would say Americans are much more literate in terms yeah. of the specifics of war, and mm. so if you take a Japanese version, which is somewhat dulled down in the sense, I don't want to say dumbed down, I'll say dulled down because it's it's not quite as, it, it's something like 20 years behind in terms of like, um, it's um, clichédness, you know? Yeah. You know, if you watch something from the 50s now, you'd be like, oh my God, they're such stiff wooden actors. Well, mm. when I watch Japanese stuff that's um, trying to be Western, it's usually kind of like old and, you know, campy and like 10, 15 years behind. Yeah, yeah. So to me, it's not going to really pass the, the smell test that I felt Metal Gear Solid needed to pass for Snake to be a believable character, a believable military tough guy. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make him a badass and I wanted to be really right, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I think um, I think that, uh, you know, a, a good localization it can't make the game better, maybe, or maybe it can, maybe it can, but it can really ruin a game. Yeah, hundred percent. It, it can ruin a game, hundred percent. Yeah, I, think, I mean, proof's in the pudding. You did an absolute fantastic job of it, um, and kind of really set, I guess, you know, the precedent and the roots for all of those characters that are still in games today and still being released today and, and uh, remade and stuff like that. So, um, can you tell us about your experience with the Silent Hill games and Silent Hill Two? You've uh, gone on record before to say that uh, Silent Hill Two was actually one of your most fulfilling projects. Absolutely. Silent Hill 2, um, it was, it was um, again, it was uh, probably around 99 or 
but I, I would go over to uh, to meet with the team quite a lot. They were very yeah. open to, um, from the very beginning, they were really open to, before they'd even written anything, talking things over and eager to see how it might go over in America because they weren't even, uh, as you know, there's no Japanese uh, voiceover for it. Yeah. So it was it was really always intended to be for foreign audiences. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They had that quite in mind. And so uh, Mr. Owaku was really, he was very eager that the translation be done well. Mm. And in order to do so, he, you know, he, I guess he, 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 he read pretty good Japanese uh, English, like most, like many Japanese do. Um, mm. Couldn't speak it, but he could read it very well. And so <clears throat> I would translate the stuff and he would, he, he read over everything I did. And he would ask me, you know, ask questions, you know, and I would ask him questions, you know, why, why, you know, why is Jared's, you know, doing this here? Or why does Mary feel this way or doing it? Um, and we would talk quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he would say, you know, why do you write it this way? Can you do it more like this? And sometimes I'd, I'd say, well, the Japanese is like, uh, we would never say that in this situation. Where he would say, what would you say? And, and he would rewrite the Japanese, you know, mm-hmm. if I made a good argument. So we had a lot of great back and forth. And in the armed, we had uh, like a, a complete movie-like script that was great. That, that must have been uh, really important because there's quite a lot of uh, like complex and quite dark ideas in Silent Hill. Yeah, and that's why um, they were also, I think, very intelligent to keep me on board. And um, I arranged uh, the auditions and the actors to come to the auditions and together uh, maybe like four Japanese guys plus me watch the auditions. I would, I would, I would run the actors through different you know scenes. Mm. And uh, then we talked about which actors we liked, and then the uh, you know, and then of course we did the uh, then we did the motion capture, and while we did the motion capture, we videotaped it because we um, I had already done a few uh, a few voiceover jobs, and I I was concerned about not only when you when you do a uh, a game, you know, you're, at best what you can do is you can watch on the monitor the uh, the, the characters talking, and you know, and you kind of talk. It's called you're overdubbing. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's called automatic dialogue replacement, but uh, ADR. But the thing is, when we did the, the, the motion capture, you know, we've got all these guys running, you know, moving around, and they're doing these scenes. But I knew that we we couldn't mic them up, obviously, in that environment, and so we would have to do the voiceover later. But I wanted the voiceover to be as seamlessly matching with the movements as possible, and so the idea we came up with was. Um, I think it was my idea actually was to videotape us doing the motion capture so that then in the recording booth, we would show them the videotape of the motion capture, them speaking the lines. So they were just listening one ear and, and then redo the lines the same way that they did it. So, cause in the moment when you're acting, it's, it's very different than when you're. So you mentioned in there, obviously like at this point, you know, there's the ADR rooms and you know, with late nineties, early two thousands, you've got motion capture, you know, recording it and yeah. everything like that. How's the process of game translation kind of changed over the years? You know, especially with like right, the right. new newer technologies and the you know the, the the advent of the internet and stuff like that. Well, um, you know, it's an entire industry now. It's a giant, giant industry. At the time, the the word localization didn't exist, so yeah. we were just you know. Well, now you know you're, you're multi million dollar industry mm. uh, companies which only do game localization. You know, but for all that very little has changed in a lot of ways you know the the technology that you speak of 
Um, yeah, and these are um, computer-assisted translation tools that they store glossaries and they you know, remind you, last time this was translated this way. And, you know, so they're very useful for, for, for those types of things. On the other hand, we're in a climate where it, things are very different in terms of um, at least the most vocal fans appear to be asking for a different kind of translation. I personally, you know, think that translators do an amazing job. You know, um, they're completely dedicated to, I think, you know, they get a bad rap. Sometimes there's um, this talk of localizers and translators. I, I hate localizers, but I love translators. It's nonsense. Mm. It's nonsense. Um, what people simply don't understand if they only speak one language is that you cannot write, you can't, you can't translate something and not change it. You are changing yeah. it. You know, people might poo-poo that and say, well, we, I just want to know what it says. But do you really? Do you really want your characters to? The place that I am, I am going to go is to the adventure room where I will seek a treasure. Is that really what you want your characters to speak like? <laughs> you just, I mean, I don't think so. And then they're going to say, oh, no, now you're just making the, you know, ridiculous. But, you know, these are, the point is these are artistic and judgments that need to be made in order to satisfy a lot of different hats. You've got to satisfy the meaning. You've got to satisfy the tone. You might have to make a joke. You might have to keep it a riddle. You might have to uh, make, I don't know, fan service or, a, you know, there's a joke that's in Japanese that doesn't work. So you actually have to make reference. A million different things, you know, um, but what it never is, is, or almost, almost, almost never is a translator simply, you know, puffed up with pride trying to get their own message across. That's a, yeah. bu that's a bunch of bull because if there is anyone doing that, they certainly don't work for 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 me and um i haven't seen them because if you want to become a professional in the industry obviously you you have to um you have to do good work it's a very competitive industry a lot of people have become translators in the recent years um and now there's translators from japanese to german and translates japanese to turkish and um, those things didn't exist before and it's because of video games well um before you uh, finish, can we t uh, talk about Dragon Baby as well? Um, you're the president of that company? Sure, yeah. I'd appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I uh, founded Dragon Baby. Um, it, was, it was right uh, when Corona started, actually. Okay. It was in March, March, March of uh, 2020. And uh, since then, um, my co-founder, Sam Burton, has joined on, and we've got a very healthy and growing company going here in Osaka, Japan. We go from pretty much all language pairs, um, of which there are about 13 or 14 that they're doing into games these days. We like to do very creative, interesting games. If you look us up, maybe you can find a, a few of those. I don't want to yeah. go into too many examples, but but yeah, it's uh, you know I've always been I've always been a game localizer. You know, mm. since uh, since since '91, I was doing this. And before that, I was watching localized Japanese cartoons. So, yeah, I'm very, um, very happy to be where I am now. And and there's a whole new generation of translators of mm. uh, you know all these great Japanese creative works, and 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 not just Japanese. You know, um, my company also goes from Chinese into different languages, or Korean, mm. or German, or you know any language pairs. Um, we've got people, creative people that love games that are working on it. So. It's a, it's a great time for the industry, you know, that um, indie games have made it such that it's just so such an open environment for creative people to be making games and 
for them to be reaching audiences um, digitally in, in in ways that were completely impossible uh, back when I was doing stuff. Yeah. In the industry, yeah. Wow, that's absolutely brilliant. And uh, you know what? Very, very insightful, uh, especially for me, and hopefully very insightful for our audience. Um, you know, a bit of a pioneer when it kind of comes to uh, localization and translating there and uh, really, really eye-opening. So, what a fantastic interview. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you so much.